Hey, we've got your chance to win tickets to another music festival. Bourbon and Beyond happens September 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th in Louisville, Kentucky at the Highland Festival Grounds and features performances from folks like Brandy Carlisle, Train, Buddy Guy, Mavis Staples, The Killers, Duran Duran, Gaslight Anthem, Wayne Newton, The Black Keys, The Black Crows, The Avett Brothers, Old Crow Medicine Show and Spoon, Bruno Mars, Blondie. Do I need to keep going? There's a whole bunch more. Uh, keep listening for your chance to win tickets and find out more at bourbonandbeyond.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Middle of last week, we heard the news. We lost another one. A woman that most of us have referred to as Sinead O'Connor. Uh, that was her birth name, Sinead Marie Bernadette O'Connor, born December 8th of 1966. Most recently, though, she had taken the name Shuhada Sadakat. And before that, she was going by Magda Davitt. And she was a fascinating and polarizing figure throughout her entire career who, of course, often gets reduced in conversation to a single moment Just on one, an episode of Saturday Night Live. One stupid episode of SNL. From 1992, which I watched live on television. This is an obvious rock and roll bedtime story. It is a story to which our relationship and our understanding as a culture has shifted dramatically in those 31 years, I think. I can't believe it's been that long. And it's a story that, as these sorts of stories often do, now says more about America in the 1990s than it says about the individual performer performance that happened then. And there's a lot of different stories and a lot of different controversies and a lot of conflict among, amongst other artists, right, and performers that we could mention. But squarely at the center of it sits this moment that is so infamous this infamous moment of protest on national TV. There's a key word there. You just said protest. And I think that's the right way to think about it because that gets us to what is like sort of a core tenet about Sinead O'Connor that I had kind of missed for most of my life, which is to understand her, you have to understand what she was aiming to be. And that was not rock star or pop singer. Right, right. This is a quote from her memoir. And here is this is directly her words, quote, everyone wants a pop star. See, but I'm a protest singer. I just had stuff to get off my chest. I had no desire for fame in quote. Musically, she was always most inspired and animated by protesters, a few in particular, Dylan and Marley. By the way, her reggae-ish version of Prince's I Will Die For You is rad. She, she loves she loves reggae. That's, that's a thing that comes in and out of her life over and over and over. You, If you ever heard her talk much, you would talk about that. She loves uh, you know, the Rasta way of life. Uh, she studied it. She hung out with people in, that, in those spaces. She recorded in Jamaica some, so that was a big thing for her. But as for Dylan, in that memoir, you mentioned Rememberings, which we'll talk about in a moment. She comes straight out and says this, quote, his song Gotta Serve Somebody is my roadmap for the kind of artist I wanted to be. Not just an entertainer, but an activist. Gotta Serve Somebody is an early Dylan song for me because there was this weird like proto-Christian punk band that I was really into, and they did a version of I Gotta Serve Somebody on the end of their first record. They went by the name Johnny Q Public, and... <laughs> Which is hilarious in retrospect. I didn't even understand it because I was too young. I was like in sixth grade. And my dad wanted to have like a a trip where he was like, we're going to go and we're going to like, it's like a guy's trip. Like you get away from your siblings. It's just me and you. And basically he was going to like tell me about the birds and the bees. Like didn't think I knew yet at, at the age of 12 or 13 or whatever it was. But he was like, oh, we can go to a baseball game. I was like, I don't want to go to a baseball game. I want to go to a rock show. And so <laughs> this band was playing in Iroquois Park. And we we went to Iroquois Park and that the early version of the amphitheater and we watched his band play and it was it was like fifteen of us. <laughs> it was awesome. But they played Gotta Serve Somebody. So Gotta Serve Somebody's always been a big Dylan touch point in my life. Were they were they a good band, Brian, or was it like from nuclear fallout? No, um, I, I thought they were really good. I still think they're really good. And I had a we have a mutual friend, Megan, who years ago told me that she started to reach out to artists and 
performers and creators who had done things that had inspired her in life, right? To just, you know, regardless of how yeah. famous they were. And I always thought that was really interesting. She said, I would just write him a letter and say, hey, this work meant a lot to me or whatever. So I started doing that a few years ago and I found this guy, the lead singer of that band on Facebook. And I sent him a message mm-hmm. and said, and told him this story about like, I, I probably mentioned you introduced me to Dylan. And I was really, but I, I still occasionally will listen to that record. I'll, I'll, I'll send you some tracks. It's pretty good. I think it's on Spotify. And but anyway, welcome <laughs> to Brian and Murdoch's podcast. I, wait, wait, who Sinead? Who? To, yeah, let's talk about Sinead. Let's get back to the protest singer. Um, so she loves so, got to serve somebody. And wait, right. okay, so we we talked about Dylan, and we talked about Marley. That's the other obvious person. We've talked about Marley a lot on this show. We have a, a couple of companion episodes, one twenty two and one twenty three. If you're new to the show, we talk a lot about reggae as a protest form and as a form of music and how it sort of gets incorporated into rock and roll and we talk a lot about bob and i mean you can't talk about bob without talking about protest music that's just that's sort of the core thing but if she was musically driven by protest what is she protesting right we know bob was protesting the way that the people were treated in his country and the way that uh black people were treated in in different ways throughout history uh there was a lot of you know, things that Dylan was protesting about wars and about the way the U.S. was doing things. What was Sinead protesting? And and that is really the other thing I would say that you need to know about her is how animated she was by this disdain for child abuse. And it, it's because she was an abused child. Right. So we can't have the discussion about Sinead O'Connor without talking about that. So this is your trigger warning here. At yeah, least one yeah of them. that's uh, that's important. Thank you for doing that. So uh, a couple of things about sources for this episode real quickly. A lot of times we don't do this. There's a couple of core sources here. So lots of stuff in the show notes for you to check out. And there's obviously over the past week, there's been tons of stuff dropped about Sinead. Honestly, been planning to do a Sinead O'Connor versus the Catholic Church episode for a long time and had sort of put it on pause because there had been a because this Allison the K book dropped and I wanted to really consume it. And then this happened. But Allison McKay back in May dropped a book. She's a she is a uh, a music writer, but also an academic and a cultural critic. And she wrote this book called Why Sinead O'Con- O'Connor Matters, which just very plainly put, right? And it's amazing in how it weaves together both McCabe's personal relationship to O'Connor's music with biography about Sinead and criticism and sort of a a mm-hmm. looking at her effect on culture. So really, really interesting stuff talking about like sort of how the last 35 years, how the culture and the perception of Sinead has really changed. So I'm going to borrow from that book some and and I will try to point that out when I do. Additionally, we do have the advantage finally of having Sinead's own voice. As, As you mentioned, she finally completed and published a memoir back in 2021. So not that long ago. And it's called Rememberings. Right. And if I remember right, this was a big deal because she flaked on a couple of big big deals early in her career and was resistant to some unauthorized box. Yeah. I mean, she was just always careful about how she was being represented, right? This is an ongoing thing because she gets misrepresented constantly, which is pretty much the crux of this entire conversation. Right. About her. Yeah. Everything. Right. And so she worked on it for a long time and she explains at a certain point in the book that, you know, she had to quit because she, I don't know if you heard this story, but like in 2015, she has a hysterectomy and does not get good medical care and says she just basically sort of goes off the rails for a while. And so, and so she abandoned. So she actually apologizes in the middle of the book to say, here's a big chunk of time that I don't cover very well in this book because I have this medical thing happen. Right. Again, we're going to talk about this over and over, but the thing with Sinead, She was way ahead of her time in the way that we are transparent about our mental health. Right. So where, where should we, do we start with her upbringing? Is that where we start? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing we need to remember about the, her voice in all of this and this book is that this book is impressionistic. And so it's, it's less like a historical artifact though. It sort of, attempts to be and and it's it's art it's artistic in the way that the stories are told and so there's a lot of these like sort of like creative writing essays about different things that happened in her life that are very descriptive and warm but not sort of like sticking to the facts i'm not saying she's making things up but it's just different than reading like a straight like accounting of events right so right 
I just just all of this. So her voice is going to be mixed into this. Is she a reliable narrator all the time? I don't know. You know, I mean, we talk about that a lot on this show, and I think that's an interesting thing with her in particular. But we're going to hear her perception. And that, I think, is important because I think what has been lost is her version of this story in a lot of ways. And so that's where we're going. So, yes, get us to get us to like the beginning. And so for the purpose of this conversation, we need to let's talk about Ireland's relationship with the Catholic Church, right? Right. That's, I mean, we have to start there. Catholic Church is in the title. So we should probably say, why is the Catholic Church a big part of Sinead's life? And there's so much irish history to unpack right like i mean we we don't we've done this recently a little bit we talked about this with thin lizzie yeah and and charlie pride and and, (laughs) charlie pride so yeah we have talked about irish history on this show before so real quickly i mean just you know this right it's fought over for most of its existence is it british is it not is it independent and with this fight comes this fight over like what's the religion this happens in most parts of the world you know um, if you want to get academic on this subject, I will say I've provided you a resource that I will try not to read too much of because it's I, yeah, we've already talked about Johnny Q Public. But there's a journal article in the show notes that's uh, it's about the transformation of the Catholic Church in Ireland post World War II and sort of what happens from 45 to the mid 70s, which is important because that's the time the Sinead is is coming of age and is sort of born into, right? And while there's a lot of change happening in how social and spiritual issues are reckoned with, there are still this these remnants of this very like localized presence of the church and of individuals representing the church in Ireland. So in remembering, Sinead actually talks about her early perceptions of men of the cloth. She tells this story about being really upset with the way her mother is acting and knowing she needs help and trying to go and get a priest to come help, right? So that's the sort of relationship she has from a very young age about this is a place of authority in this town and in this country and in the way I'm being raised. And the other authority is my mom. And when my mom and her authority is lapsing, who do I go to? I go to the church. This all comes into play in as we start to talk and unravel this thing we've already said, which is she's an abused child. And um, so what we need to do now is just, again, say for a trigger warning, this is very disturbing, but it's important to understand this is part of the larger story of her life and things that are set everything into play or what I mean, people think about her. This story doesn't make sense. The story of SNL does not make sense if you do not know this background. And I don't think most people know this background. So no. I think it's important that we, we mention it. But yes, go ahead like 30 to 60 seconds if you don't want to hear this because it's rough. This is from Rememberings. Here's the quote. Quote, I'm jealous when I see other girls walking after school with their mother's arms around them. And that's because I'm a kid crying in fear on the last day of term before the summer holidays. I have to pretend I lost my field hockey stick because I know my mother will hit me with it all summer if I take it home. But she'll just use the carpet sweeper pole instead. She'll make me take off my clothes and lie on the floor and open my legs and arms and let her hit me with the sweeping brush in my private parts. And she'll make me say, quote, I am nothing, I am nothing, over and over. And if I don't, she won't stop stomping on me. She makes me beg for mercy. I won the prize. This is the most haunting part. I won the prize in kindergarten for being able to curl up into the smallest ball, but my teachers never knew why I could do that so well. And the thing about shitty parents is they affect you for... Your entire life. And it's <laughs> well spoken. Well said. And and Brian just knows that I'm giving him some type of mental telepathy about something I he knows what I'm talking about. It's easy to sit outside this and hear this story and think she must hate her mom. But you you can see when you study her early life that this mother-child relationship, what it was and what it was not, is yeah. the chief animating factor for what she does with most of her career. Yeah, I mean, this defines her. Like, if you read Rememberings, it is mostly a book about, even though she wouldn't probably promote it this way, it's a book about her and her, her relationship with her mother, which ends prematurely. Here, here, Here's a quote from Rememberings. I have been angry at my mother all of my life, but I displaced it. I couldn't admit it was her I was angry at, so I took it out on the world, and I burned nearly every bridge I crossed. And jumping ahead just a little bit, it is 
all made more intense by the fact that her mother will die in a car accident in 85 when yeah. Sinead is 18. Which is probably a great thing. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That, and I know this from personal experience with people that I, I love and live with. You know, just because a person dies does not mean that their hold on you or their effect that they have had on you goes away. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the trauma is more real after because you have you don't have that person there to try to like think you can like work it out with anymore so this is a the defining thing in in right. Sinead O'Connor and in everything that comes uh, comes out of her artistic career and it happens before her success so for her whole career she'll make statements and do things that are centered around what her mother would have yeah. thought yeah. or what her mother did or didn't get to see in her life and her career. And then you add religion on top of that, and it gets more complicated, right? So she goes on to explain how the religion of her youth and the spirituality that she was striving for would come into play in these moments, these moments of abuse, even. She would say, quote, I love Jesus because he appeared in my head one night when my mother had me on the kitchen floor, and I was naked and had cereal and powdered coffee all over me. And my mother was saying all sorts of scary stuff, and suddenly there was Jesus in my mind on a stony hill on his cross. So and see how so, all this gets mixed up, this imagery and this abuse. Yeah. Um, and she lives with nuns eventually as a young teenager, right? That's a real you, thing. You were, Yes, you pointed this out. So it, her parents get divorced, which, you know, we're talking about Irish history. I, this is Ireland. I, this is crazy because that's very hard to do in Ireland. <laughs> like, you know, at this point in Irish history, it was very hard to get divorced. But they, they do. And there are a few times that her dad will try to take custody of the kids because he's somewhat aware of what's happening. But again, in Ireland, very hard to separate the kids from the mother specifically. So the fact that he was able to do this at all really speaks to how abusive and and ugly it got. But things are a mess, as you can imagine. And so there's all this trauma and Sinead starts mimicking a bad habit that her mother, she goes into detail about this and rememberings where she starts stealing things. Her mother was doing this. And so she, I mean, she didn't know any better. So she starts stealing things too. She ends up getting sent to a home for troubled girls run by the order of our lady of charity. And here's where she gets a guitar from one of the nuns. Yeah. 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 I love this story too, because she says sister Margaret got her a guitar in a Bob Dylan chord book and then hired a woman named Jeanette to teach her how to play. And this literally changes her life. And so it's Jeanette's wedding where Sinead sings in public and is heard by Paul Byrne, who is Jeanette's brother. I, I, he's we, in a, which is insane. He's, a band. he's in Intua right. Wua. What, are, what's the name of that band? Intua Nua. Intua Nua, right? Yeah. So that's an uh, Irish band. You can find them. I mean, they're out there. You can, you can stream their records. Uh, it, it's crazy how these connections work, right? It's like you're in this whole country. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> She just happens to take lessons from the sister of a guy who's in a popular Irish band. And she doesn't join because she's she's still too young. Yeah, she's like but 13 she or 14. With, yeah, but she works with them a little bit. And I think this is where she sees that music is this escape, which happens yep. to a lot of people if music becomes an escape. Like, I mean, it was for me. And so she puts out a one ad because that's what you had to do and said she was a singer looking for a band. And so she spends a year, she finds a band pretty quickly and spends a year with them. And there's all these internal struggles that break up that band. But it sets her up for two really important things, right? It gets her, it ends up getting her a record deal with Insign Records, who most of the Irish bands you've heard about, they come sort of through or around Insign. Like they got this guy who started Insign is very powerful in the Irish music scene. And then it also gets her a management arrangement with Fakna O'Kelly. And that, that's the U2 guy. That's the right? U2 that's guy. The name. So it, yeah. I don't know if you know, we've talked about our differences in opinion on U2, but if you're a big U2 fan, you might know that name. They start this label in like 83, 84 that they will refer to basically later as a philanthropic endeavor. It's really just like they want to be able to make high quality demos for other Irish artists that don't have the access that they do. And so they just start making music for people. But really what they're doing is like getting one really good song out and then they'll end up getting a record deal with like a big label somewhere. So one of the early acts they do this for is into a new one. And at the head of this effort is Fakna O'Kelly. He's the head of what they call mother records. And so he is important, not just because he's connected to you too. And Sinead will co-write a song with the edge pretty quickly. I know like very early, like before she has a record out, she writes a song with the edge. Yeah. Super duper crazy. But also because she sees in him a certain brand of outspokenness 
that she takes on herself. Uh, this is a great point. So <laughs> he is sort of an asshole. Like, that's just the thing you got to know about Fuck No Kelly. Huge influence for Sinead and a lover, I think, for a while. Um, but he actually gets fired by you two very, fairly early on because he's talking shit about them in the press. <laughs> like, he just says whatever he wants to say. And this, again, becomes this is like a pattern, right? Like, she doesn't have great parental figures. This is a guy who's older than her who's guiding her and, and teaching her about herself. Um, but she will credit him with being one of the first grownups to tell her to be true to herself, right? That's a huge thing to have somebody who takes you aside and says, you, you are you and you are special and you should be that special thing that you are. And this relationship opens up opportunity for her and they're going to work together like for a very long time into her career. Uh, and it's, it's a really interesting thing. Like you'll hear her tell stories where she'll be like, and then I like, there's a whole thing that we'll get to about her hair, but like fuck no Kelly is a big proponent of what she does with her hair. So it, he's an important figure for this story. And at some point they're romantic at some point, yeah. I uh-huh. think yeah, right, right, right. problem sounds problematic red flag for me. But anyways, so, she, I will it, say we should say sex positive podcast. She Sinead O'Connor will be the first to tell you she has four kids, by four different dudes, only one of to whom I think she was ever married. And she, I mean, there's a whole section of the book where she talks about how love, how much she loved her first two tours because her and the other women that were on the tour would just go to the crew bus and like spend the night and just yeah. move around and trade around and then just go back to their bus. Like, you know, so she very much, very open about that. Again, another proponent or another component of her that I think was so far ahead of the times that she was living in. She's just so out of time in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, Who would have thought the protest singers wanted to get on the bus, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> in, so in 87, we get the first album and it's called the Lion and the Cobra. It goes what a, gold. What a great she album. It's a Grammy nomination for best female rock vocal performance. Luckily not best new artist. Uh, and the single is Mandinka. She is all over college radio. She gets American TV. She gets Letterman in 88. And she does better in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S. I, I forget how big she actually was in the U.S. Like we sort of after SNL, like we just sort of disowned her as a country. She has put out, I think she put out 10 records or something. And the one with nothing compares to you on it is number two. So that just shows you sort of where things stopped for her publicity here. But this first one, Lion in the Cobra, A, I mean, Mandinka is an amazing song. And if you've not watched a live performance of it, go online and watch like a music festival performance of the late, from the late 80s. It's freaking awesome. Uh, but if you're reading a standard obit or, or, or you know, like just came out in the last week, or if you read like a bio in the last couple of years about Sinead, this story about her typically just goes, Lion and the Cobra happened. She, you know, she got a Grammy nomination and then the SNL performance. And that skips over a lot of stuff. You miss a lot of stuff when you do that. And there's a lot of context that needs to be set up here. I always heard the story basically as like Sinead O'Connor is a pop singer. And then on SNL, out of left field, she makes a political statement. Everyone's shocked and thinks she's totally out of line. And that's not really how it goes down. Right. Because she's always political and confrontational. Always. Period. Right, from the beginning. And Nigel Grange, is that his That's the guy from Ensign. Yeah, I was trying to think of his name. Yeah, so that's the guy that runs Ensign Records. So he told her to be more feminine early on, and she went out and shaved her head just to piss him off. And that was Fogno Kelly. So she comes back to Fogno Kelly, because they may be living together or something. He's managing her, at least. They may be romantic at the time. And she's like, I can't believe Nigel said this to me. And he goes, I think you should just shave it all off. So she just goes, she tells this story and rememberings, where she has to convince the guy at the barbershop to shave her head because he, he doesn't want to do it. And she, she does it, and she walks back, just walks back into the offices and just walks up yeah. to Nigel. And, and it's her trademark. It, it, it may, dude, it was inadvertent, but I honestly think it's what made her so timeless in terms of like sort of the fashion icon component of her, which is not something I've really slated to talk about, but there is a little bit of a fashion icon part of her. Yes, Sure. And if you watch all these videos that I mentioned of her performing in the late 80s, everybody else in the band looks very much from the mid to late 80s. And she looks like she walked out of a modern video. She does not fit in the best of ways. It's, it's, It's shockingly modern and very cool. And it's because combat boots and a t-shirt and a shaved head is like not consigned to a time period. 
So because yeah. of that, she sort of has this like timelessness to her that's really cool to see when you want go. I need a. I think it's in the show notes, but there's like a specific music festival up here. She does an eighty eight or eighty nine. And it's just like a space alien. I mean that in the best way. And that was often something p- people would say about her because of the shaved head. And I don't mean it in a derogatory sense. But it is almost like this person is from another planet. This creature is from somewhere else. And she's on this stage with this band. And it's, it's, it, it's remarkable. And secondly, do you know the UK-wide release of The Line of the Cobra featured a snapshot of Sinead roaring along to the music and American executives decided that that cover was too aggressive for the American market, which is funny. So there is a less intense picture for her on the U S version of the LP. I mean, and this just happens to her over and over. Right. And the other thing is that she's very young at this point. When when I say she was born 66, 66. So lion and the Cobra is 87. She's 21 years old. She just, you know, sort of got out of like living with nuns in the last handful of years. I mean, you know, she's encountering the world for the first time in these exaggerated circumstances. Another thing that's totally lost. And you got to talk about the hip hop thing, man. Are you going to talk about the hip hop thing? So, okay. I'm glad you brought that up. This has become a bit forgotten because people sort of act like SNL was the first time she spoke out. And again, I'm talking historically. So if you lived through this, you may say, you may be listening to this and be like, no, 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 I definitely thought of her as, you know, I know these other controversies or whatever. But I'm saying just sort of in the like synopsis of how people talk about Sinead O'Connor now, any obit you read was like Sinead O'Connor, who was known for doing this thing on SNL. Like that's just how it read in two paragraphs. But she was doing stuff to piss people off for a long time before this, in, in the brief period of time that she had to do that in her fame, right? So that's 92. First album's 87. She's got five years. And she, Makes plenty of use of those five years. She, there was this whole thing about the rap categories, the Grammys not being televised. You remember this, right? You were old enough yeah. to, to yeah. pay attention to this. Right. They weren't part of the telecast. So they're like, listen, we're going to give, basically we're going to give black artists awards, but we're just not going to like, no, nobody wants to see that. Right. Was right. So, and so certain artists got very upset about this. Sinead O'Connor gets very vocal about this. And she, she one year she doesn't go to the ceremony at all. The second year she goes and she she goes to a stylist that has Public Enemy's logo put into her head, which is dope. If you've never seen a picture yeah. of it, uh, yeah, look that up. Uh, and then a few years before this, there's this whole other thing that happens where she goes on tour and there's all these people at the venue. It, well, these two people in particular come to her room at the venue and she doesn't really know who they are when you hear her tell this story. And they just ask her, like, I guess she thinks they're with the venue. And, and they were like, hey, what do you think about playing the Star Spangled Banner before you go on? And she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to do that. And so, this, is no. what, this is what she says. Or she, what she says she says. This comes from her. She's like, the Star Spangled Banner has never been rock and roll except for when Jimi Hendrix plays it. Basically. <laughs> like, she, she puts it in an Irish sort of speak, but she's basically like, it's... It's mental, and you know, it's it's never been fun unless it's Hendrix, and Hendrix isn't here. So why would we play that before the show? Uh, so good, yeah. And, and so she just figures they wanted an honest answer. Again, she's like a twenty-something-year-old kid, right? And right. so she gives no she explanation, gets, right? And she gets slammed because that leaks. Because oh, they go and tell, they go and call the media, like whoever those right. people were, and I don't even know who they were. It's like unclear, but this gets out into the media. And people just, I mean, they just, they, there's protests. People are like running over her CDs with steam shovels and shit saying she's anti-American. It's crazy. Yeah. I do remember this well. There was a, there's an anecdote, anecdote, sorry, uh, that people were protesting a show of hers and, you know, in the aftermath of all this. So her and her friend actually dressed up in disguise and went out and picketed herself. And I remember, <laughs> I remember that and thinking that it's kind of cool. Uh, I think there's pictures of her actually in those co- in the costumes. I think. Well, and that's the thing. She's bald for most of this, so if she puts on wigs, you don't recognize her. If you look at pictures, her 2014 record, her last sort of studio record, which is really good, by the way, she and all of the cover photos and stuff were wore like lots of clothing and wigs, and you're you'll look at it and be like, who is that? Because it very much changes her appearance when you're used to seeing yeah. her with the short hair. 
And the anti-American thing that happens to her in the press, Sinatra and God. MC Hammer both make public statements. What funny, what funny bookends of, of the pop cultural sphere to have on your butt. Phil Hartman as Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. fun of making fun of her. Um, and now it, it's kind of funny in retrospect when you think about it. Well, and there's a lot of this when you see what happens after the SNL performance. Like a lot of this doesn't hold up, right? I mean, these people who I think at the time thought that they were doing the right thing or oh, we're pro-American or whatever. It doesn't read that way now, several decades in. And there's obvious reasons for that because spoiler alert, Sinead was sort of right about what, well, not sort of, she was right about what she was protesting in terms of child abuse and abuse of power, et cetera, et cetera. But there are even other things that need to be understood before we really dive into this SNL appearance. So she's used to courting controversy. We got that one out of the way. But she'd actually released an EP before the SNL performance to raise awareness about child abuse. I had never heard of this, never knew this. Right, like they never said Sinead O'Connor, who's always out there trying to talk about child abuse and get people to listen and understand that it's bad and it's widespread, et cetera, et cetera. Like nobody ever said that. She was out there doing stuff way before this to, you know, bring that to light. So it's not a new topic. She does a November of ninety one cover story for Spin. So October of ninety two is SNL. So this is a year before in which she makes some bold statements about all the world's problems being rooted in child abuse and all the bad players. She she actually says something about like every bad person ever was basically abused as a child, which is a crazy statement to make, but Mm -hmm. it again shows her focus on this issue. And we're going to get to nothing compares to you in a second. I think Uh, nothing compares to you. The, the video, one of the amazing things about it is the tears. It's what people will talk about. Right. And those tears are real. And she says she's thinking about her mother and how abusive she was in, in you know, and in, in just all of the emotions again, that are going to define most of what she does throughout her career. That's, that's a real reaction that they caught on camera. And so child abuse is a giant topic from the very beginning. Here's a quote. Every time I sing, nothing compares to you. I think of my mother. I never stopped crying for my mother. I couldn't face being in Ireland for 13 years because of it. So this and- isn't out of left field. Urban NBR this September in Louisville, Kentucky with Bruno Mars. The Killers. Black Keys. Brandy Carlisle. Plus Duran Duran, Billy Strings, Black Crows, the Avid Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Urban NBR September 14th through 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com. Before we jump into SNL, which is going to happen, let's get to the second record in 1990. It's the I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. And this is where listeners and, and you guys are, if, if you're not familiar with her, you're going to know her on a basic level. Yeah, well, record. and it's all very political. So people pick out Nothing Compares to You because that was the big hit. But the whole record is is not exactly pop music. No, no. The first single on the album is Feels So Different, starts with the serenity per- prayer, right? <laughs> you know, like and most of my pop records. Right. And then there's a rendition of an anonymous 17th century poem performed over the loop of Funky Drummer by James Brown. <laughs> Again, on most of my records. I don't know why this is weird. So it's not a normal mainstream radio fair type of thing. It's the protest singer. But there is an old Prince cast off on there. And uh, Sinead's manager had suggested that she tried to do it. And that's where we most people know her from. Yeah, which, okay, so the other thing that bugs me is that people call this a Prince cover. Kind of isn't. I mean, I guess you could say that it is. There is a demo of him doing this in 84, and then he does it after her. He writes the song, but this is a cover of a song by The Family, which is not a band that the that Prince sang in. It is a band that he put together out of the remnants of the time. They record Nothing Compares to You, but the group only performs as the family one time, and most of them end up just joining the Revolution, the Revolution. Which, is, which is a different Prince band. So like, this right. is a really weird period in between two Prince projects, and Prince doesn't actually sing it. It's other people in that band that sing it. He, there is a demo version that he had created like in 84, and that, has, that gets released later 
on like some Prince compilation, and then he does hits. Yeah, Yeah, you hear that. And then he does a live version of it that gets out there in the mid '90s after Sinead makes it a hit. But at this point, it's not somebody else's song that is is already popular, right? She makes it popular. And here's timeline stuff that's important for you. So it becomes that song becomes a unlikely worldwide hit in April of 1990. SNL is fall of '92. Dude, you're right. So. I always think that she's like promoting nothing compares to you. She's not on SNL. That's not why she's there. That's that's old at that point. She is actually there because she's got a new record coming out of jazz standards. Am I not your girl? Which was my favorite record. Was it really? Okay. So here's, here's the thing. I don't know. Have you ever heard her talk about why she did this? Um, at the time, but not, not she was, she was terrified of having to follow that out. Those two albums up. So she said the only way this is, I mean, she's sort of freaking brilliant when you hear her say things like this. So she's like, the only way I'm going to get out of this situation is to put out something that nobody expects. Like something yeah. so far out there that nobody's going to compare it to these other two albums. So that's why she does covers and jazz standards. And for those of you who don't know, um, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered is on there. Black Coffee is on there. Don't Cry For Me, Frickin' Argentina. I Want to Be Loved By You is on there. Um, so that's, that's the kind of tunes that she, she did with the orchestra behind her. So when she goes on SNL, the plan is that she's doing, it's the Loretta Lynn song, I think, right? That she does as her first song. Which she sort of takes as this, like, this is my thought about the music industry and how it's chewing me up and spinning me out, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a little bit of a political thing there. But she's working that song, I think. And then the second song she's going to do, which again, because you can never count on anything normal with Sinead, is she's going to do an acapella version of a Bob Marley song called War. Do you, are you familiar with the Bob Marley song War? Did you know it before this? Um, no, I learned about the song afterwards, uh, you know, after I got into, to Bob Marley, the song itself for this performance is not a surprise. She does it in dress rehearsal and she even holds up a photo during dress rehearsal. Um, but it is the photo of a refugee child. Yeah. And then during the actual performance, you know, this, she pulls out a photo of the Pope and she will rip it up and say, fight the real enemy. But it's not a random picture of the Pope. There's something important about all of this with the actual photograph. So, so basically, you can summarize what happens next as all of the context of an action being totally and completely lost on the world. And that's why I wanted to really spend some time on this particular thing. It, there's a ton to unpack here. But first, this is funny. Do you know what the action of ripping up a photo on television is in reference to? Um, Brian, at the time, I didn't understand that ripping up a picture of the Pope was a big deal. I didn't. I didn't even get it. I, I mean, honestly, lost, I I always sort of me. didn't get it either. Like, because so I, this is where our age gap comes in. So you remember seeing this, right? Yeah. And you were so in '92. You were. I was, I was getting out of high school. You were getting out of high school. high school. So I'm I'm nine in '92. Yeah. So when this happens, I'm like close to ten, but I wasn't really sneaking and staying up to watch SNL for another couple of years. That starts happening in like 13. And so I, I heard about this in abstract, but I didn't understand any of the significance of it. And also, you know, I have a weird relationship with Catholicism. I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show. Okay. I think to you, you probably think Catholicism and Christianity are pretty close, right? Like what my household would have been like and what somebody else in a Catholic household would have been like would be similar. Somewhat, but I found service to be incredibly different. So, yes. And I didn't realize for a long time that the public perception for a lot of people is that that's pretty much the same thing, right? It's sort of like... Catholicism. Yeah, it's sort of like what brand of coffee are you drinking? So not at all in my house. Catholicism was... I don't want to say we thought of it as being... Pagan, but we definitely didn't think you were on the right track if you were Catholic, right. because you've made Mary at equal, on sort of equal footing or, or sort of in this sainthood, right? And there's there's other things about the theology, blah 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 blah. Now that I'm older, I'm like, this is crazy that as a kid I was indoctrinated with this. But my point is that if we had heard about this, we would have just sort of like kept our distance because it wouldn't have been offensive to us 
as much because we would have been like, well, the Catholics don't really have it figured out yeah. anyway. Again, and, that, that's just how I was brought up. I'm not saying that is the case. And and how I was brought up is I have no idea about anything about the Catholic Church, so I didn't understand what the big deal was. And however many years it was later, I was like, hey, everybody, Sinead O'Connor was right about that shit. Like, immediate, like I remember thinking, like, so we vilified this person for speaking the truth. So there's you know, all of right? these very meaningful things that she does that are brought into this this action. But the action itself is ridiculous. And I don't think people know this. So here's where she gets the idea for the action of ripping up a photo. I'm like, what's okay. the history on ripping up photos on television? There's a specific incident. And for this, we got to go back 15 years before the SNL incident to a random pop cultural moment that Sinead thought was funny. That's basically it. And it had very little to do with any sort of social change. It involves a band that we have talked about in a lot of snippets before because they pop up when we talk about Irish music. They pop up when we talk about NXS. Uh, that is the Boomtown Rats, Bob Geldof's yes. band. Okay. Now, I- ironically, Bob Geldof will go on to be a big social change guy, right? But at this point in the late 70s with the Boomtown Rats, 78, they have a song called The Rat Trap or Rat Trap. It's actually pretty good if you've never heard it. And it's been pushing towards the top of the pop charts in the UK at this time period, but it keeps not quite getting there. And that's because for seven weeks, Summer Lovin' by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John from Greece is captivating hearts across the UK. So this silly rock band cannot get their song to number one. So the week it happens, which I guess is week eight, they go on top of the pops to play Rat Trap, and they think it's funny to stand on stage, each member of the band holding their instruments or strapped around them and holding a picture of John Travolta or Olivia Newton-John. And the camera opens just on, on the pictures. So Top of the Pops comes back from commercial. Here's this performance from Boomtown Rats. And you see pictures of the two stars of Greece and they get ripped up into confetti and thrown up in the air. And then the Boomtown Rats start playing Rat Trap. This episode brought to you by going completely sideways. <laughs> this is important. If you don't yes. know this, you don't understand the sense of humor. And you don't understand the reference, right? People don't know right. what, what, like what, what is the significance of ripping up a picture? Like, to your point, it doesn't really mean anything. And so... That's, it's this photo. It's a specific photo. It's a specific photo. Well, oh yeah, okay, so that's the other thing. So... It's not just any photo, and it's not a photo of John Travolta that Sinead O'Connor is ripping up. So she takes the action, the ripping the photo from the Boomtown Rats. But you talked about her mother dying when she was 18, and again, being a major moment in her life. So they had to go clean out her house, right? And there's a photo of the Pope on the wall in, in this woman's house. And Sinead will say that it's literally like the only photo her mother ever hung up. And it was taken, again, significant. Pope John Paul II took a trip to Ireland in 1979. So it's taken then. And this is now the early 90s. So she has a photo. She still has a photo. And she was carrying around the photo this entire time. She says that she took the photo out of the house. She decided to keep it and keep it on her person because she was looking for a way to meaningfully destroy the photo. Right. So why now in the platform national TV? Was that calculated? So I actually don't think it was that calculated. I think it's easy to think that it was, but I, I think timing's everything. And really having researched this woman pretty significantly, there are several things that culminate before this SNL performance, like very much in the days before, that I think drive her to choose this moment. I don't think this was like a long-term plan. And one of them is that she's been reading the book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. Do you know this book? Holy Moses, no, Brian. He lost me pretty quickly. <laughs> okay, this, I'm gonna, this is something I know nothing about. I'm going to get you to stuff you do know real quickly. Okay, so <clears throat> I don't want to get too distracted by it, but 
because it's like a cultural artifact itself. We could do a whole episode on it. Just know that it's a book based on some documentaries that make some claims about Jesus from a historical perspective that massively veer from the Bible. So one of them, there's this whole thing, and I know you don't know this, but there's this whole thing, if you know much about the Bible, this like almost like fan fiction element where it's like Jesus, you know, alternate version ends up with Mary Magdalene, who is a, a prostitute that washes his feet. Okay, so anyway, there's this whole thing in this particular storyline where it's like Jesus didn't, he didn't die on a cross. He actually like, you know, he lives in a trailer with Elvis, that sort of thing, right? It's like he lives across town with Mary Magdalene. So there's, there's all of this stuff, right? It doesn't matter so much what's in the book, but just know that it is very, um, it's very different than the Bible and it's very different than the Catholic teachings, right? And it becomes a bestseller in the 80s and there's like all of this pop cultural time committed to it, right? Because it outrages people. So over the years, 60 Minutes, Time Magazine, Discovery Channel, BBC, they all do stuff on this, right? And Stuart Copeland from The Police actually writes a rock opera based on it. That's a real thing. Get the fuck out of here with that that thing. I didn't... I told you this could be another episode. But here's here's the other place where it's going to veer right back into... for. any, any sort of younger audience that's listening, I'm going to connect the dots here. So it is uh, Dan Brown, when he writes The Da Vinci Code in 2003, will borrow very heavily from this book. I think he even references this book in The Da Vinci Code, but he borrows very heavily from some of the plot and some of the things that are, uh, are examined in it. So much so that the authors will actually unsuccessfully sue him for copyright infringement. That's how much he borrows from it. So there's no Da Vinci Code without this book. You guys enjoying the episode about Sinead O'Connor so far? (laughs) Dude, this is important. If you want to understand Sinead O'Connor, you need to understand she was reading this book before SNL. So she's people did not understand. No, they didn't understand. They didn't understand any of this, right? And so she's pissed off about the Catholic Church. She's learning all this stuff that she thinks may or may not be true, but it's making her mad. And then. There's also this time where she is at the same time period. She's reading an Irish newspaper, and in the back of the Irish newspaper, she comes across this story about sex abuse in the Catholic Church, a very specific example of it, where people had gone to police and police had in some authorities and, and they had not taken it seriously. And so she's very upset about that, right? These are things that are taking place right before this happens within the lead up of a few weeks, but there is something that happens that week right before SNL while she is in New York doing the dress rehearsals that will shape this, that I had never heard this before. So while she's in New York, she makes friends with these guys that own a juice bar. She's like, there's a bar she goes to. And one night she realizes the bar across the street has opened and it says juice bar. She's like, what is that? She goes across the juice bar. She famously does not like alcohol very much. Goes to the juice bar, and that's a front for some Rasta guys who are rolling weed and listening to Jamaican music and having a good time. So she spends a, a lot of time in these in, in a week or two before the SNL performance with these guys. And they are bringing her along on a lot of what they believe with Rastafarianism and, you know, it's all mixed in with spirituality and, and elements of the Bible and all this stuff, right? So there's all of this spiritual stuff that they're teaching her. And she's, like, really digging it, right? They're listening to reggae. They're smoking weed. They're having a good time. And one night, the main guy at the shop is really upset and tells her that he thinks he's going to get killed. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he says he is, he was, there was a drive-by shooting. Somebody tried to shoot him and missed him, but he thinks they're coming back for him. And she says, you got to tell me why this, like, what are you talking about? And he explains to her that what she has missed this whole time that she's been hanging out with them is that they are gun running. So all these guys that have been teaching her about Rastafarianism and about religion are gun running. That's bad. But what makes it really bad, if you're Sinead O'Connor, is how they're gun running. And he then explains to her that they're gun running with children. Oh, it's so terrible. They're sending kids across New York with book bags that have drugs and guns in them instead of books and getting them into different places because they'll go undetected. And she loses her mind about this. And yeah, what's happened is he, he's in the middle of a turf war because somebody, they have now encroached on somebody else's space. And that's and why he, his days are numbered. So this doesn't go well for her. And no, her 
mentally it just it breaks her. So all of these things together, right? And remember, this is a woman who only views her platform as a protest vehicle. And she doesn't want or care about the career portion that much. And ever since she's gotten this hit single, she's just been pissing people off, right? What, you know, she expresses a view about the, you know, the, the Star Spangled Banner. And now everybody's mad at her. Uh, she cuts her hair. She does this. She does that. Everybody's got an opinion on everything. And she is so angry about yet another form of childhood exploitation that reminds her of her own childhood. And she has been reading this book. This wacky book, and she saw this news story, and she still is carrying that fucking picture of the Pope around with her. And so she hatches a plan. She hatches a plan to make a real statement on TV that Saturday night. So reading from Time Magazine's Q&A from November of 92, so you can see that's a month after this SNL performance. This is a question she had. You created an enormous controversy when you tore up a picture of the Pope on American TV a few weeks ago. Why'd you do that? And this is Sinead's own words. Quote, it's not the man. Obviously, it's the office and the symbol of the organization that he represents. I consider them to be responsible for the destruction of entire races of people and their subsequent existence of domestic and child abuse in every country that they went into. End quote. You know what's funny that nobody ever mentions about this is that she comes back out with Tim Robbins at the end of the episode. (laughs) You know, they do the thing where they wave like nobody knew what to do. <clears throat> so it, when it happens, the studio goes completely silent there, You'll read a lot that Lauren Michaels was like, don't turn the applause thing on. Right. So like part of the reason it's silent is they never turn the applause button back on to, to get people to make a noise because they don't know how to sort of handle it. She'll talk in rememberings about going backstage and like all the doors are shut. And, like nobody, you know, there's like nobody around, but she sticks around at the end of the show and she goes back out. With Tim Robbins, you can find it on YouTube where she's waving. And but so it takes a day, right? Yeah, the real the, the real blowback doesn't start until the next day, and that's and part of that is again it's capitalism. It's because people start calling NBC, right? So at the end of this Time Magazine Q and A, the interviewer recaps the series of things that we've already mentioned that uh, Sinead's done over the years in, in protests to offend people, and ends the interview by asking. Why do you think it upsets people so much when you speak out? And this is her words. Quote, the main reason is be- is that I'm a woman. If I were a young man and I was on TV saying these things, I would not be as brutalized. Secondly, it's because I'm not a safe woman in any way. That's because of the way I look, of course, the shaved head. I can't be put in any category. And that freaks people out. People always judge the book by the cover and they don't listen but I do believe in God and what I'm trying to do, end quote. And I think what we see happen in the days after the SNL appearance prove this point, right? I mean, she says this a month after, but like, she's right. The Alison McKay book is very careful to draw these lines together too, pointing out how Sinead, being a woman who could not be contained, plays this really big part in all of this and leads her to be treated with the, like just outright misogyny that is, at the time, condoned by the society at large. Right. And I would say there has been a massive reckoning in the past few years. And again, in the last few days since her passing with how she was treated the rest of her Mm -hmm. career. In some ways, she was out of time, like an artist not really from here in this place and actively protesting the church, the country, Uh the leadership. Uh All of those things now would play differently. But then, nope. Yeah, no, not. Yeah. that's exactly it. You've encapsulated it well. And and she'll continue for the next 30 years to insist on making people look at her. And and I come back to the statement that she made about her shaved head and how it makes people uncomfortable. The ways in which she talks about mental wellness, the way she will openly let the world watch her struggle with her own mental wellness for decades, way, way ahead of her, of the time and a way of way ahead of like what, the society at large was like able to handle. There was just not a way to process this. Right. At, at all. There was no conversations about mental health or, or anything at all. So here's some big reactions in the aftermath of SNL. They're worth noting. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the three and then we'll go through them. Number one, Joe Pesci. Number two, Yikes. Dylan birthday party. Number Ugh. three, Madonna. So Pesci hosts <sighs> SNL the next week and said he would have smacked her. Again, ma- this is the misogyny the thing. I would have right. smacked her. Now, of course, uh, I understand who Joe Pesci is at this point in his career and at this point in the 90s, but still. Good 
Goodfellas yeah, right, had right, right, right. come out, you know. Um, they give him, him a photo of the Pope taped back together. Yeah. He holds it up and people, you know, applaud for that. Then the Dylan birthday event is a few weeks later and Sinead is supposed to sing, I still believe in you from slow train coming. So I keep, I keep saying this, but like there's so much context loss in a lot of these stories. So you hear this story that she comes about what you're going to tell us, which is she comes out on stage and gets, there's an uproar, right? But what is not understood, I don't think, is that her plan was to do this song very subtly. So Booker T is the band leader that night, which is awesome. Booker and T and the MGs, yeah. So she has worked up this thing. She says that this is a very personal song to her. Again, Slow Train Coming is her Dylan record. I mean, the reason she got into doing any of this is Dylan, right? So this is a very important moment for her. And when and she performs this song, it makes her upset. It makes her upset. This is a very personal song. So so she, in rehearsal with Booker T, is like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this song. And he goes, well, what we'll do is just do it real quietly. And so you can just be, you can almost whisper singing. So that's the plan. So now, resume the story. So when she comes out, half the room is booing and the other half is cheering. And so it's so loud She's totally overwhelmed. And even if she wasn't overwhelmed, she can't do this damn song now because she was going to whisper sing this Dylan song. No one will chill out. She is totally freaked and she's trying to figure out what to do and they're trying to get her off stage. Like things are going chaotically. Booker is across the stage being like, sing, sing. You know, they're backstage. They're like, who do we send on stage to get her? And so she just, she says, of course, that it was like sort of God speaking to her or whatever, but she turns around and she decides to start screaming the lyrics to Bob Marley again. So she she does war again. She's like, listen, if this is what we're going to talk about, let's talk about it. And so Chris Christofferson comes out on stage to get her. And he says to her, and you can hear it on the mic. And I remember when it happened, you can hear him say, don't let the bastards get you down. I saw a meme today that said, in a world of Jason Aldean's, be a Chris Christofferson. <laughs> Pretty funny. Uh, Sinead, in the aftermath of all this, is pissed they didn't send Dylan. I mean, she's still, she was saying this in 2021 or whatever. She's like, he, they sent out Chris Christopherson to do Dylan's dirty work. And so she tells a story about like going backstage and just like staring at him, like real intensely. And like he doesn't understand what's going on. He's like, I don't understand what's happening. Uh, But yeah, I mean, she, she's like, this is your party. Come fix this. And here's a quote from, her in 2021 about the aftermath of of Dylan's birthday, that performance quote, the media was making me out to be crazy because I wasn't acting like a pop star was supposed to act. It seems to me that being a pop star is almost like being in a type of prison. You have to be a good girl in quote. And that is, that really opens up this discussion that leads to, to the Madonna thing that we'll talk about for a second, but also just to how she reacts to women in music for the next several decades, because she has felt this firsthand. And even though the times change, and I think in some ways the culture becomes a little kinder to women in popular music, she, she still is like worried. She's worried about other women having to endure what she endured. And she's very clear in rememberings that she doesn't feel like the SNL performance is what derailed her career. Now this feels like a recasting of things, you know, in retrospect, which, you know, we should allow her, but she says that it is nothing compares to you that derails her career because it puts her in a place she didn't belong. And the SNL performance sets it straight by putting her back sort of in more obscurity. Right. And it, it does make a certain it makes a certain sense, right? That in that brings us to Madonna. And so this is from oh, oh that's right I mentioned she was the third horseman of this apocalypse of, of this reaction. <laughs> so from the Pesci playbook, she's on SNL later that season, and she'll sing "Bad Girl," which yeah, don't like that one. Um, <laughs> and she tears up a photo of Joey Buttafuoco. And if you don't know who that is, uh, sorry, just Google, just Google it. I was like, it's from a time, time and place that is was, not necessary. But I was going to say, 
as many deep dives as we do down the side trails, I'm like, I don't want to do a Joey Buttafuoco deep dive. No, uh, we'll keep moving. The Allison McKay book that I keep mentioning was written from this perspective of academic cultural criticism, and at least to a certain point, right? And so it spends a lot of time examining this Sinead Madonna dichotomy. Because you have two women at the same time period who are processed by popular popular culture totally differently. And one of them is sort of punished for how she engages with her sexuality. And the other is sort of, you know, uh, celebrated for it. It, Because this is around the time that the Madonna erotica stuff is happening. The coffee table book, if you remember all that. And she's out there flaunting her feelings and her sexuality in the face of the Catholic Church with things like Papa Don't Preach and, and other things she was saying, you know, the, like a prayer. And the, the like a prayer video for Pete's yeah. sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, from a social anthropology perspective, it, it's really fascinating to put those two. So if you want to engage with that more, I encourage you to, to check out that book. But it's potentially more interesting to me to fast forward past the Madonna crap to examine Sinead's reactions here in the future a couple decades on with other women in popular music and and two that we can just mention quickly Britney Spears and Miley Cyrus and there's a lot of similarity if you just sort of take a step back to Mm -hmm. Sinead's journey and Britney's journey and you don't hear this comparison a whole lot but I think it's important to mention because you really do have I mean all the way down to the hairstyle right remember when when Britney decided to shave her head at the yeah, at the place, and then she's hitting the cars at the gas station with the umbrellas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's it's a, a, you you fast forward a couple of decades, and it's like, are we any better as a culture at reckoning with mental health as a subject matter with the people who we put on pedestals? That's really interesting. And then the Miley Cyrus thing happens. On, that happens on Twitter, but the wrecking ball video comes out, and Sinead actually writes open letters to Miley, which Miley, you know, is young and kind of ignorant and doesn't take it well but they are trying to have this conversation about you know what it's like to be a woman in the spotlight and what happens when sort of the machine decides it's done with your sexuality etc etc it's it's all really fascinating stuff in terms of what she take what Sinead takes on as her own for the next several decades after having gone through this herself yeah um and you can see this Real time, I mean, Sinead is still encountering her her own trauma. Like, I mean, I mean all the way up until you know, in, until she died. And we, I mean, we haven't talked. There's a lot of stuff we're just not going to get to because of time. But you know, she lost a son to suicide just in year the last it, just in the last year. You know, there's a lot of speculation as to how that played into things. It, she posted a video on the internet somewhere ten days ago ish or something before she died, where she was you know, showing fans around her apartment and, and talking, you know, even offhandedly talking about missing her son and, and those sorts of things. So there was always this struggle with, with mental health and tons of different, you know, there's a whole Dr. Phil thing that happens uh, where Dr. Phil reaches out to her and sort of exploits her at one point, um, depending on how you understand that story. Uh, but there's just, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, but it all centers around at the end of the day, she, she won't be quiet. She won't be silent, and she's going to stand up for the things that, that piss her off. And she does. She did that all the way to the end. And and like all of our episodes, I would like to give Morrissey the last word in our episode here. <laughs> who that is who, politically incorrect. Who for for Pete's sake, it's like championing Zuckerberg all of a sudden over Elon Musk. It's like Morrissey is is speaking the truth. So this is something Morrissey said. Um, at her passing after she had passed away quote, she was dropped by her label after selling 7 million albums for them. She became crazed. Yes, but uninteresting. Never. She had never done anything or nothing wrong. She had proud vulnerability and there is a certain music industry hatred for singers who don't quote fit in this. I know only too well, and they are never praised until death when finally they can't answer back. And the cruel playpen of fame gushed with praise for Sinead today with the usual moronic labels of icon and legend. And you can praise her now only because it's too late, because you didn't have the guts to support her when she was alive. And Morrissey is fucking right. Wow. I mean, 
I don't know that there's anything else to say about that. If you want to, if you want to read more, there is tons in the show notes. Lots of stuff to unpack. Again, those two books are uh, really nice pieces of work to to engage with her a little bit more. And you know, you know all the plugs. Check out our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Uh, you can hit the show notes and win tickets to uh, Bourbon and Beyond Music Festival in September in Louisville, Kentucky. We want you to do that. Uh, but I want to end the show a little differently because. I think it's appropriate given this conversation, but also it's just really fucking good. Uh, A lot of people don't know this, but shortly after all of this stuff with uh, SNL, Sinead puts out a cover of a Nirvana song. What else should I be? 